everybody and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st and ending mid-August. Welcome to Episode 10, The Northwest Territories. When writing these stories, a theme kept popping up in each one that I felt connected them all very thoroughly, and that is how strange many of these stories were, or how strange certain elements of them could be. Yes, I understand that in producing a podcast series about ghost stories, I will undoubtedly involve strange stories. The nature of ghosts is strange in and of itself. But the collection of tales for this episode that I uncovered really stands out for being, well, odd. As such, I figured I would structure this episode in a bit of a unique way, starting off with the most typical ghost stories, then getting weirder and weirder as each new story begins, and finally finishing with an area that is a hotbed of strange, inexplicable happenings. Our journey today will then take us all over the wonderfully weird, spectacularly strange Northwest Territories. In Hay River, there's a popular little place called the Back Eddy Cocktail Lounge and Restaurant. For many years it was owned by Linda Duford, who quickly began to realize that there might be more than just her living patrons hanging out in the establishment. Shortly after she took the reins on the business, she was closing up the building alone and heard a large crash on the swinging doors, causing them to fly open and swing shut. She would have gone to investigate to see what had caused the commotion, and she might have answered a lot of questions she would come to have much later, but something that night told her to just get herself away from the building as quickly as possible. That's exactly what she did. In 2004, she was hosting her parents inside the restaurant, and all three of them saw the previous owner pass right through from one side of the room to the other. That would have been just fine and dandy. After all, he had worked there for 50 years. But instead of having retired, that owner had died. Two years later, in 2006, a man from Fort Resolution died. He was a large man, too big to fit inside any casket in the town, and so he was wrapped up in a white sheet and moved to Hay River. Around that same time, Linda Duford, 
unaware of the Fort Resolution death, encountered a spirit she had dubbed the Michelin Man after his big puffy white jacket. He was simply sitting at the bar before vanishing. The next night, two ladies were sitting at the bar at the approximate same place, and the light fixtures above them started strobing, which was garish and distracting. Linda tried to fix the lights, but couldn't find what was wrong with them. The ladies understandably stood up to find a different seat, and as they did so, the lights returned to normal. When they sat back down, the strobing recommenced. They became nervous, and quickly moved to the other side of the room. Linda later found out that they had been related to the man who had died in Fort Resolution, and about how he had been moved to Hay River. That, then, was the connection between them, the lights, and the Michelin Man. Among other things, frequent experiences at the Back Eddy Cocktail Lounge and Restaurant are seeing the shadow of a tall cowboy with no feet touching the floor, or sometimes, when you look in the mirrors, the space behind you seems to be filled with mist or clouds only ever seen in the mirror. It wasn't due to all these strange things, but Linda Duford decided to sell the business last year. The restaurant is still open, now under new management, but although the owners have changed, you can bet that the ghosts inside have stayed the same as ever. Augustus Richard Pierce died in 1853 at Fort McPherson, where he was buried. The problem with that was that everyone knew Pierce felt really strongly about being buried at Fort Simpson, and really didn't want to be buried at Fort McPherson. Despite this, that was exactly where he was interred by Roderick McFarlane. For six years, Piers lay beneath the soil of Fort McPherson, and for those same six years, the guilt of burying his friend there weighed on McFarlane's shoulders. Finally, in December of 1859, McFarlane gave the orders to exhume Augustus Richard Piers and move him to Fort Simpson. You can tell he was serious about wasting no more time, otherwise he might have waited for a warmer and brighter month where boat travel would have been possible, and not transport his friend in December. After all, Fort Simpson was 890 kilometers away, a long distance to travel by dog sled. A new, sturdy coffin was built to replace the old rotting one, and the body had to be transferred between the two. As the lid to the original one was removed, 
the men around gasped. Pierre's body was in mint condition, hardly looking a day older than when they had interred him. This unnerved everyone, especially those who would soon be among the team to move him to Fort Simpson, including Roderick McFarlane. Nonetheless, they did what they had to and prepared the team of dogs that would take them on their journey. They did not start off very smoothly. By Fort Good Hope, going was slow and the company feared that they would not make it alive if they did not move faster. Something had to be jettisoned so they could reach the next fort sooner. The men took inventory of all they carried. The only item that wasn't absolutely necessary turned out to be the coffin. Well, the men set out from Fort Good Hope less one coffin and toting their friend's corpse wrapped in big white sheets. Despite their increased speed, traveling between forts was still not an easy task, especially at that time of year. The air was bitterly cold, and it still seemed unlikely that they were all to make it to Fort Simpson alive. The men became upset that they should pay with their lives for a mission devoted to a man already dead. There was talk of burying him at the next stop, or even out in the bush. That night, as they set up camp, their dogs started barking wildly, jumping back and forth and growling. This was extremely unusual behavior for the dogs, did they sense something? The men strained their eyes to see into the darkness and detect what the dogs already had. While they were scanning their surroundings, the air shook as someone from beyond their sight shouted, March! The men were frightened, calling out for the intruder to show himself. March! rang out again and again. Suddenly, the dogs calmed, and each lay down to sleep. The mysterious voice was heard no more that night. Three days later, still on the same leg of the journey, the men were once again talking of ditching the corpse at the next fort and staying there for a while. Once again, that night their dogs were worked up into a frenzy as the voice shouted march over and over into their camp before ceasing completely. No answer to this was ever found. The day came when the dog sled hearse pulled into Fort Simpson. The men had kept to their original plans and stuck them out to the very end, and fortunately, they did all arrive safe and sound. Another coffin was built, and Piers was buried two days later. The travelers, with their task now finished, told their story to the men at Fort Simpson to see what they could make of the strange voice. One of the listeners had a great talent for mimicry and happened to know Piers. He decided to emulate how he thought Piers would say March. The travelers were stunned as the word March sounded throughout the room exactly as they had heard it on those cold nights in the bush. Roderick McFarlane was woken up in his bed that night, and so was the man in the bunk beneath him by the ghost of Piers standing in their room. Both McFarlane and the other man pulled their covers up over their heads to hide, and when they looked out once again, Piers was gone. Eventually, McFarlane took this to be a sign that Augustus Richard Piers was now at rest and had come to say thank you. After all, he too had suffered a long trip from Fort McPherson to Fort Simpson. A long rest was well deserved. <laughs> Thank you.
The next two stories are actually a pair told to Up Here magazine by a man named Bob Norwegian. These stories are not ones Bob has personally experienced, but rather ones that have been in his family for a few generations. You'll find that is the case with a lot of folklore, especially in rural places throughout Canada, and you'll certainly find the latter of these stories to be a bit... quirky. Bob Norwegian grew up in the bush on the Rabbitskin River near Fort Simpson. It was an area very sparsely populated, but his family had been in there for a few generations. There had been gunfights along the Rabbitskin many years ago, and blood had been shed. Bob's uncle Leo would hear strange things out in the bush when he was little. They would only ever happen in the early spring. Two or three gunshots, like a muzzleloader firing. Tat-boom, tat-boom, Leo would say. He could never tell from which directions the shots were being fired. In the spring of 1935, Leo was not thinking of gunshots at all. He was out in the bush hunting ducks, one of his favorite things to do. There was still a bit of wet snow on the ground, and through this he crept, sneaking up on a nearby small lake. He peered through the bushes and saw a collection of ducks sitting on the water and began to ready his gun. Suddenly, from the other side of the lake, rang out two shots. Tat-boom! Tat-boom! All the ducks took off as a third and final shot rang out. Annoyed, Leo decided he would find out where those shots were coming from once and for all. For the first time, he was certain as to where they had been fired, and since the lake was quite small, it wouldn't take him long to walk to the other side. Leo went around the little lake and inspected the land all over that side. There was nothing to be found, no tracks, no sign of anyone at all, no one from whom the shots could have been fired. Leo would later ask his grandfather about the gunshots. Had he heard them too? His grandfather had indeed heard them, but wasn't very bothered by them. Oh, that's people from the past, a long time ago, he would say. Leo would never be able to find the person who was firing the gunshots because the shots themselves had been fired many years earlier. They were simply echoes of the past, and of people that had long since been dead. Sometimes that's all ghosts are, echoes and nothing more. It's through this line of energy that we get things like retrocognition or little pieces of hauntings, just a sound, a smell, or even a glimpse of something quick. As the grandfather showed to Leo, it's nothing to worry about. No, our problems arise when the hauntings involve a little bit more than an echo, when they involve any interactive energy, or anything that can make decisions.
This is another story from Bob Norwegian along the Rabbitskin River that was recorded in Up Here magazine. His grandmother used to know an old lady in the area. They had been friends for many decades, and they bonded over many things including their love of dogs. The old lady's favorite from all through her life had been a black one with a white collar from several years earlier. The lady sadly died of tuberculosis back in 1940, and of all the precious memories they shared together, this one clearly stood out as the weirdest. It had been a perfectly lovely autumn morning. There had been a little snow, the river was frozen over, and the world around seemed very peaceful for Grandmother Norwegian. That peace was shattered when her friend ran into her house with her eyes bulging. She was clearly a nervous wreck, pacing back and forth, spurting out words until she collapsed into a chair by the door. Once she had regained her composure, she began to tell Grandmother Norwegian all about what had happened that morning over at her house. She had made tea and was sitting down sewing that morning when a person burst in through her door. He had on black clothes from head to toe, save for a white shirt, and although she could see he was a man, his face was obscured by the large cowboy hat he wore. Although you might think it is rude to rush into a stranger's house without notice, you could consider the Rabbitskin River a very rural area, and that's even compared to other communities in the territory. Any dog sled driver who had been traveling for days would have done the same, as her house was probably the first one he had come upon in quite some time. She was used to hosting strangers such as these, and she asked the visitor if he was in such a circumstance. He made no reply, simply standing there at her doorway. He must have been truly exhausted, she thought, and poured him some tea, and told him that she would go warm up some bannock. As she was attending to the bannock, she realized it had been very odd that her dogs outside had not alerted her to the presence of any visitors. Usually the sight of anyone would send them jumping and barking, especially a stranger, but even now they were completely silent. She would have to get some answers out of this visitor before he left. The bannock was warm now, and she returned to her living room to find the man had disappeared. The room was entirely empty. The house was too small for him to have gone anywhere else. He must have gone back outside, perhaps to unharness his dogs. As she went to the door, she noticed his teacup was empty as well. He must have been thirsty, at least. She opened the door and looked out into the snow, but saw nothing. No visitor, no other team of dogs. She looked down at the snow in front of her and was astonished to find no human footprints leading up to her door. Now the only dent in the perfectly smooth fallen snow were paw prints like those of a dog's, leading to and from the main door. It was then that her mind made a startling connection. The old-timers in her community believed that the dogs, which were part wild back then, could slip between forms, changing to almost human on occasion. They were not to be trifled with, and therefore treated with respect. Her mind flashed with the image of her visitor, with his face obscured by his hat, black clothes from head to toe save for a white shirt. Could it be? She looked over to her favorite dog, the black one with the white collar, out amongst the team of others. If you're wondering what she saw, no, the dog was not dead, as you might have thought the story was leading up to. 
No, the dog was very much alive, and he had clearly drunk a lot of liquid. In the words of Bob Norwegian, he was taking a long pee. If you go anywhere on a ghost walk or look up any town's haunted history, you're likely going to find stories about hotels. Hotels tend to be a very haunted class of building simply because of the amount of people that die in them. More people check into hotels than ever check out, as they say. In any given hotel, you're going to find people of all walks of life, all ages, all healths, and you can't always control where or when you go. In hotels, you're bound to have a few heart attacks, health problems, accidents, sadly suicides, and especially back in more rough-and-tumble days, even murders. Due to the likelihood of a death occurring within its walls, hotels will often have a policy on what to do if a body is discovered. Usually, they all follow the same sort of process. A housekeeper might enter into a room and find, we'll keep it nice and simple for now, that somebody has passed away peacefully in their bed overnight. The housekeeper doesn't freak out that much. They call down to the front desk, who sends the proper authorities up. They examine the body and take it out the back entrance so that no one else sees it and, you know, gets spooked. Then the housekeeper returns to the room where they change the sheets, fluff the pillows, open the window for some fresh air, and if there are no other rooms available, you check in that night. Now, hotels don't tell you this, of course. They don't say, come stay with us, we've got a great place to die. They keep that off TripAdvisor and Twitter, but it does happen. That's why whenever I check into a room for the first time, I wonder, who died in it last? A fun game to play, and for the more adventurous, who's next? Food for thought as you drift off in your lovely warm beds tonight. The reason I bring this up is because the next two stories are about hotels. What we have for you here are two different accounts of hotel hauntings that are exactly the sort of things you might run into during a stay. You won't necessarily know the history or who died there or anything like that. Even the staff may not know. All that you're left with are the things that happen inside that room when you're all alone trying to sleep in a strange bed.
The Yellowknife Days Inn on Franklin Avenue is where a man checked into a room one afternoon and took a nap. He had not had a good sleep the night before. There had been fireworks, dogs barking, people yelling, the usual holiday celebration stuff where he had been visiting. As such, a nap was very much needed. The man woke up an hour or so later and heard the bathtub running. That was strange. He got up, turned the tap off, and hopped back onto his bed to watch TV. He settled into a movie but began to get hungry, so he picked up the phone and ordered some pizza. While he was in the middle of placing his order, he heard a small bang from the bathroom. Can you hold on for a moment? He asked the person on the other end of the line. Apparently they couldn't. They were rather busy at the moment. Fine, he said, and he finished his order. Once he had hung up, he went into the bathroom to see what happened. The Kleenex box had tumbled to the floor. He returned it to the shelf, now a little bit uneasy. The pizza person arrived, and the man went down to the lobby to collect his food and pay for the meal. When he returned to his room, he discovered his suitcase, previously empty and standing still against the wall, had somehow fallen to the floor. This collection of little things had started to add up, and the man, already uneasy, no longer felt like he wanted to be alone in that room. Fortunately, he had some friends in town and invited them over to his room to keep him company. Seeing their faces and diving into conversation with them helped take his mind off the strange things that had been happening in his hotel room until a noise from the bathroom halted the conversation. The Kleenex box had fallen into the tub. His friends saw the frightened look on his face and asked what the problem was. As he was trying to come up with some explanation for it, someone walked by in the hall the tap turned on. That was the last straw. With his friend's encouragement, they went out for drinks, and one of them welcomed him to spend a night on the couch, which he gladly accepted. The couch wasn't that bad, so the next morning the man returned to the Days Inn to check out in favor of staying at his friend's house. When he got to his room and opened the door, a startling sight met his eyes. The pizza box was upside down on the floor, the Kleenex box was now by the main door, towels were thrown all over the bathroom, and the phone was flipped over and off the receiver. There was now no way he was going to spend a night in that hotel room. He grabbed everything and left as quickly as possible. That couch would suit him just fine. A fellow who, like in the other story, wished to remain anonymous, was passing through Yellowknife and checked into the Quality Inn and Suites on 49th Street just for a night. After dinner, he turned on the TV to watch some shows and dozed off fairly early on. Near midnight, he woke up in the dark room. The TV was off, and there was a noise coming from the bathroom. The sink faucet was dripping. That was annoying. 
He tried to ignore it, but even though he turned the TV back on, he could still hear the water drops over the noise of the programs. He got up, walked into the bathroom, and gave the tap a good wrench with his wrist to shut off the water. He looked up into the mirror, and in the glow of the TV from the other room, he could see how tired he looked. He crawled back into his bed, anticipating drifting off within a few minutes, but that didn't happen. He was finding it impossible to get to sleep. No matter what position he tried, no matter what he tried to think of, he just couldn't drift off. He tried adjusting the volume on the TV, but that didn't work. I'm assuming that, like some people, the TV only serves to provide a little light and some white noise to help him get to sleep. That's never worked for me, but I know some people who can't sleep without something like that going. Anyway, after a few hours had ticked by agonizingly slowly, after all, he was only passing through and had to be on the road again in the morning, when at about 2am he felt someone sit down on the foot of his bed. The mattress sagged a little, and he could feel the sheets pinch around his ankles. The TV turned off. He looked down toward the end of the bed, but in the darkness could see nothing. Instead, he slowly moved his feet toward the edge of the mattress where the dent of a person's weight was. As he did, the pressure subsided, and his feet passed through the area without touching anything but the sheets. No one was there. He turned on the lamp and called down to the front desk to ask for a new room. I don't blame him. The phone rang a few times, and a lady picked up. She told him he was out of luck. The hotel had been going through some renovations, and as such, not all the rooms were open. The ones that were, already were booked. Was something wrong? Something about speaking of the creepy feeling he had was uncomfortable to him, however. Saying it out loud would mean admitting that it really happened, and he preferred not to think of that. He made up a quick lie about the thermostat and said goodnight. After that, he turned the TV back on and managed to slip off into an uneasy sleep. Around 4.30 in the morning, he was woken up yet again, this time by someone screaming down the hall. This may or may not have been anything paranormal, but it still frightened our guest so much that he turned on the lamp and stayed awake until dawn. When he went to check out that morning, a different lady was working at the front desk. She asked how he enjoyed his stay. Now safely out of the room for good, he told her it had actually been quite uncomfortable. He recounted about how the TV kept turning off, the tap had turned on during the night, and how he could have sworn someone had sat down on his bed. He expected her to give him a funny look, as if he were crazy, but instead she grimly nodded and apologized. Apparently, he wasn't the only person to have had such an experience in that room at the Quality Inn. It didn't always happen when people stayed there, but occasionally the staff would get very strange complaints from occupants of that room. In addition to the things that our guest had encountered, people had reported seeing a man, dressed in old, grubby miner's clothes, standing near the window looking out into the street before disappearing. No one knew exactly who that miner was, but it seemed that he was very attached to that room. Well, he can have it, our guest said, before grabbing his suitcase and making a beeline for his car.
I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that the last story involves an area that is home to all sorts of strange encounters and eerie feelings. I hope to deliver on that promise, but before I can do that, I have to divert your attention to some important announcements. First, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the book Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2018 by Touchwood Editions and available online at Amazon and Chapters Indigo, or in stores pretty much wherever you can find new books. It's a wonderful anthology and has been a very generous resource for this podcast. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the Podcasts tab and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, If I were a dog that could turn into a human, I would do it just so I could listen to this podcast. Then I would go back to doing regular dog stuff. Or something like that. The music for this podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I am one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. Our next episode will be released Monday, August 5th, and will take us into Wild Rose Country, the province of Alberta. With such a healthy mix of prairies and mountains, cities and country, you'll find that there will be much to explore as you exit the long weekend. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30am and 2.00pm. Everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different one at 7.30pm for every night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30pm. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street outside the Visitor's Information Center. The only exception is our Chinatown History Walk in the daytime, which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours. We now turn to a part of the land that is known both for its natural beauty and also its long-standing history of human disappearances. Sometimes, on those rare occasions, we do end up finding the bodies of ones who have gone missing. A few times in this series I have told stories of men being frightened to death. Think back to the Saskatchewan and PEI episodes. You could say they were frightened out of their wits, that they lost their minds. The people who vanish into this area of the Northwest Territories lose more than just their minds. They lose their entire heads. Five hundred kilometers west of Yellowknife, near the border between the Northwest Territories and the Yukon, there lies an enormous UNESCO World Heritage Site, Nahani National Park. 
In the park, you'll find such wonders as Virginia Falls, a waterfall that drops over 315 feet, almost twice as high as Niagara Falls. You'll also find the Nahani Valley. People have inhabited these lands for nine to 10,000 years, although many avoided the Nahani Valley at first. They believed it to be the home of an evil spirit. Those who did end up taking residence within the valley's confines, like the Dene, talked of mysterious creatures lurking in the forests. To further complicate matters, the Naha people of the nearby mountains who had occasionally raided the Dene disappeared entirely without a trace. Apparently, they had been a people of large warriors who used to decapitate their victims, which, okay, that sounds like a very convenient feature of a people who vanished in the area when you consider the following mysterious deaths that took place in Nahani National Park. There is a portion of the park known as Dead Man Valley, which, of course, can never have a pretty history behind it. It's a place of strong winds and thick mists, and it's where Frank and Willie McLeod, two brother prospectors, tried their luck back in 1905. They ventured out in search of gold, but never came back, so their uncle came up to the Nahani region to look for them in 1908. He learned about where they were last seen, and where they had made to set up camp, and it was while hot on this trail that he came upon the mouth of a creek at the top of the valley. There lay the two dead McLeod brothers, weathered by the elements and completely headless, their heads were nowhere to be found. What had been the cause of such an unfortunate end for Frank and Willie? Many theories have been put forth, that they were murdered by a third partner, or they ran into the wrong side of someone passing by. Perhaps most eerie is that link back to the Naha people, communities of large warriors with a penchant for raids and decapitation that disappear without a trace, and two guys who wander right into their territory are found headless? Make of it what you will, but the fact of the matter was that the McLeod brothers were dead, and nothing was going to bring them back. The creek where they were found is called Headless Creek, and Dead Man Valley is home to the River of Headless Men. If you're thinking that such dramatic names might be a bit much for a single strange event back in 1905, you'd be right. That is a bit too much for a single event. But we don't just have that one encounter. In 1917, Swiss prospector Martin Jorgensen came to the Nahani region to look for gold himself. He set up a cabin and a small operation with moderate success, you can guess where this is going. His cabin was found to have burned to the ground, and in the ashes was found a skeleton, Jorgensen's, but missing its head. In 1945, an Ontario miner was found dead in his sleeping bag, also without his head. Yet another death along the river of headless men was that of a trapper named John O'Brien. Although he produced a fully intact corpse, he was found frozen to death, clutching matches near a fire pit. Those who discovered the somber scene found it somewhat suspicious. It looked as if he had just lighted a fire and was putting his matches away. He had been frozen almost instantly. Between 1905 and 1969, an estimated 44 people have vanished in various places along Dead Man Valley. The valley has also been home to several UFO and Bigfoot sightings, 
separate occasions not seen together. And one of the strangest discoveries was when over 100 sheep skeletons were found trapped in ice in a cave known as the Gallery of Lost Sheep. They had been dead since approximately 2500 BC. What was the cause of all these strange mysteries? Was there one single cause? Were the first peoples on to something when they spoke of an evil presence in the forests? Do ghosts of the Naha roam the region? A weird suggestion was put forth. A thin spot between dimensions. Sure, that might sound a bit too sci-fi to be believable, but when you take in all the oddities in the Nahani Valley Park, Dead Man Valley, and the Northwest Territories in general, the shoe might very well fit. Thank you.